Hi, this is What Cries Out. I'm Cassandra, the daughter. And I'm Diane, the mom. We are a mother-daughter podcast who love all things true crime. Join us as we explore the boundaries of humanity. And take a deep dive into the edges of society where the darkness lies. Each month, we will focus on a case that cries out to us. Sometimes we share generationally opposing views. Or push our own minds to that edge. But we do this to bring souls into remembrance, all while bringing a social issue to light. This is What Cries Out. Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hi everyone, I'm Deb. And I'm Beth. And we want to welcome you to episode number 32 of Dying to be Found. We, as always, are so glad that you're here today. Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to our newest podcasting friends, Cassandra and Diane. They are from the podcast, What Cries Out. And I'll tell you, once I started listening to their first episode, Beth, I was hooked. Yeah, I think it's really awesome. And it's nice to have some new friendships. Yeah. Well, they are a mom and daughter duo, and I really love how they put a lot of thought and insight into their episodes. If you get a chance, be sure to check them out. Please do. I don't have a whole lot to go into today, but Beth, I wanted to check in with you as always, and I heard you're going camping this week. Yes, I love camping. Listen, though, I was wondering after... The amount of camping trips that we went on as kids, I'm kind of surprised that you still like this lifestyle. I haven't been camping in years, and I'm okay with that. Well, I think I can really relate to Dad, my personality, and I'm very much like him. So I have the love for the outdoors. And this time, we're actually going to take the trailer up to a park Oh, cool. I do love the outdoors. I think back a couple episodes ago when we were talking about Meredith Emerson, I did mention that I knew the Appalachian Trail very well because I do like to hike. I'm more of a day person outdoors because me personally, I have to have a shower and I have to have a mattress. I'm just not into tents anymore. Did you think we were going tenting? No, because I've known you long enough to know that you have a camper, which is cool. Yes, so we have a shower in there. and Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Holy cow. We do have a mattress too. Well, good. Then maybe I'll come visit you one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so listen, I mean, I don't really have a whole lot going on and I'm going to go ahead and get started if that's okay with you. Sure is. But I do want to ask you to bear with me today because I'm I don't know if you can tell I'm getting over a cold. I'm a little croupy, so my voice may go in and out, but I'll do my best. Just bear with me today. Oh, I know you're going to do well. Today, we're going to talk about Barbara Jean and Patricia Kathleen Grimes, two sisters who were born in Cook County, Illinois. And Barbara was born on May 5th, 1941, and was a sophomore in high school, or if in case our listeners don't know what a sophomore is, that's grade 10. Honestly, Beth, I don't remember if in Canada, if they go with freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. No. So that's grade 10. 
Patricia, also known as Petey by her family, was born on December 31st in 1943, and she was in grade seven. And here in America, they have middle schools, so she would be considered a middle school student. Barbara and Patricia's parents were Loretta and Joseph Grimes, who, spoiler alert, at the time of the girl's disappearance, they had been divorced for around 11 years or so. For the rest of this story, I'm really going to be talking more about Loretta Grimes, who is Barbara and Patricia's mother, because this is who they were living with when they disappeared and who was the primary caregiver in future interviews pertaining to this story. I'm going to start, Beth, by asking you, do you ever remember watching all those old Elvis movies that were out on TV when we were kids? Yes, and oh, how I loved them. I think Elvis is a really good actor. He was. You'd have to go back and look, but still... Even today, I think he would be. And I love that he put his career on hold to serve in the military. Just in the past couple of years, Beth, I really started listening to a lot of his music. And it's ageless. Is it? Yeah. I haven't listened to him in years. I think if you go back and listen to him now, you might be surprised with how much you love it. I'll go back for sure. Yeah. What is the highest number of times that you have ever gone to see a movie at the theater more than once? I saw Prince's Purple Rain six times. Six times. So you spent money on movie theater tickets six times. Yes. Wow. Okay. We even went to his concert. What? O-M-G. His Purple Rain tour in Detroit. Oh my gosh, I used to blast Purple Rain in my dorm room in college. I'm sure my neighbors hated me for that, but I was so into his music. I've never seen him in concert, though. How was it? It was so awesome. I even still have the CD for it, and I do listen to it because he's one of my favorite artists. Yeah, he is so good. He, I definitely came of age with him. Well, putting that into perspective, I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that because Barbara and Patricia were diehard Elvis Presley fans at the time. They had the same mindset, Beth, as you did with Prince. And on one December day, they went to go see Love Me Tender at a Brighton Park movie theater in Illinois the day they disappeared. I can't say that I ever remember paying for a movie twice, but by the time I was a teenager, Beth, we could rent videos from Blockbuster. I probably rented a few more than once. Because Barbara and Patricia were such avid Elvis fans, they had seen Love Me Tender at least 10 times before they left to see it again on December 8th. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Some of the articles I read said anywhere up to 15 times, but I'll just say it at least 10 times before they left to go see it again on December 8th of 1956. Mm -hmm. Basically, they pestered their mother Loretta so much that she finally conceded and allowed the girls to go see the movie one more time. And the theater was probably about 20 minutes from their home by taking a public bus transit system. I will say that Loretta was a bit hesitant, given the fact, obviously, that the girls had already seen the movie so many times. But also, being a single mother, money was tight, especially around the holiday season. 
And regardless, Loretta gave her girls enough money for the bus ride, movie tickets, and to buy something from the concession stands. That was sweet because it's so expensive. I mean, even back in the day, the movie tickets themselves were about $1.50 for a double feature. Mm-hmm. I know that does not seem a lot at this times, but if you were to calculate how much it was today, I'm sure it's probably just as much as movie tickets are now. Both girls boarded the bus to go to the theater in Brighton Park, Illinois. And like I said, they had saved up enough money in addition to what their mother gave them so that they could go see a double feature. And the distance between the movie theater and their home was about six miles or 9.65 kilometers. So again, maybe about 20 minute bus ride from their home to the theater. Barbara and Patricia Grimes disappeared on December 8th, 1956, when Barbara was just 15 and Patricia was 12. A lot of the articles that I read said she was 13 years old, but I will say that she was just shy of her birthday because when they disappeared it was December 8th but I said earlier her birthday was December 31st so it it was her birthday month and she was still 12 years old one of their friends later said that they had seen both girls standing in line to buy popcorn in between the two movies remember I had said this was a double feature okay The girls finished the movie and were on their way home to McKinley Park when they went missing. Loretta had always said that Barbara and Patricia were very reliable and had a habit of always coming home in time to make curfew. So when they didn't show up by midnight, Loretta sent her other children, Teresa, age 17, and Joey, age 14, out to the bus stop to see if they could find the girls. Barbara and Patricia's siblings waited at the bus stop until 2 a.m. bath. Loretta had expected the girls to be home probably by midnight. What her other kids had done is they watched the bus run its route for three full cycles. Oh, my And that would mean them sitting on the park bench or the bus stop bench watching as the bus came up with three different bus cycles, probably what, once per hour? Yes, I would guess that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking back to when I used to run the transit, running the transit when I was growing up and Kathy and I used to go out on the bus system all the time. Did you? Yeah, I'll tell you that in a bit. I think I have a story about that. That might be my teachable moment. Well, No such luck. The girls never showed up by 2 a.m. and the other kids made their way back home. And this is when Loretta called the police to report her daughter's missing because, like I said, she knew her kids. She knew their behaviors. She knew their patterns. She knew immediately her kids had gone missing. Now, Beth, what is the standard answer police give to parents when teenagers don't show up? when they're supposed to. They are a runaway. Yes, exactly. This is what the police told Loretta. But because of their ages, the police did begin an immediate investigation, but did treat the case as the girls running away. So get this. Once the police were told that Barbara and Patricia were avid Elvis fans, Beth, they assumed the girls ran away to Nashville. But this was 470 miles away, and they felt that the girls were going to track down Elvis personally. Now, how crazy is that? All those miles away and two young girls with no money. I know. 
And we'll talk about this in a minute. Loretta felt the same way. She had only given her kids enough money to go to the movie theater. But in the meantime, this story eventually went national and Elvis Presley himself caught wind of the case of the two missing girls. And on January 19th of 1957, Elvis went on national television to make a plea for the girls to return home and to stop their mom from worrying about them. Now, I had tried to look this up every which way but loose, but I could not find any recordings whatsoever. I was hoping I would be able to put that into our recording today. I just couldn't find anything that was not in print. All right. In the meantime, multiple tips were beginning to come in around the girls' whereabouts the night they disappeared, Beth. I'm going to tell you up front. They're a little wacky. Not all of them. I mean, if you were to hear one or two here or there, they make sense. But there are at least 10 tips coming in and they're kind of all over the place. So I'm going to go through this list with you. Then I'll get your thoughts. Okay. Yes. So I had mentioned Barbara and Patricia's friend had seen them in line at the concession stand at the movie theater. Okay. That's plausible, right? Yes, for sure. Another neighbor had said that she and her younger sister sat with the girls at the movie theater. Again, understandable. Sure, they're going to meet up with people their age that are going to see the same movie. Sure. Mm -hmm. Now, several other teenagers who were at the movie theater believe they saw the girls get into a car with a man that looked like Elvis. (laughs) I don't get it. That one I don't find believable. No, these girls just wanted maybe in the limelight a little bit. The teenagers or Patricia and Barbara? Uh, The teenagers. Yeah, exactly. So I think they probably had good intentions, but hold that thought because we're going to come back to that in just a bit. Other people spotted Barbara and Patricia getting into a maroon car with two men. One bus driver on the route between Brighton Park and McKinley Park said the girls were on his bus around 11 o'clock p.m. So they could have been making their way home from the movie theater at that time. Mm-hmm. A security guard also said at some point he had given the girls directions. That is all I could find on that one point. But there's a lot of interactions going on here with people in the community. Where they're getting directions from, that is not clear. A restaurant owner saw the girls and said that Patricia was staggering just a bit. She needed help walking. That to me sounds like she could have been partaking in alcohol. But I do want to tell you, none of these tips, other than the girls being seen at the theater, I don't think a lot of this could be verified, but somebody did say that they saw the girls at a restaurant. A hotel clerk said the girls tried to rent a room the night they disappeared. And a few more teenagers had said that they saw the girls walking just a few blocks from their home later at night. So again, Beth, it's all over the place. Let me just tell you one more, then it gets a little crazy. On January 3rd, tips came in from an eyewitness who said that they saw the Grimes girls out with two sailors who could be listening to Elvis music. Okay, that's a lot of people. It is. And then finally, on January 9th, 
a woman in Nashville, Tennessee, stated that she saw the girls in a public restroom and took them to an employment agency to look for work. This is where I'm going to ask you, what are your thoughts about all of these eyewitnesses? Well, there certainly is a lot of them, and it could be possible. Some of the tips certainly are unbelievable. The last one I thought sounded really strange, going to an employment agency to look for work. My thoughts on that are, okay, if they did run away to Tennessee, I suppose that could be plausible. And then, of course, they would need to find work when they got there. So if they plan to stay there for a while, then absolutely they would need to get some money, right? Yes. Yeah. But this last rumor is what got the police believing that the Grimes girls had run off to Nashville to meet Elvis. Really? Yeah. While all of these eyewitness accounts were coming in, poor Loretta, the girl's mother, she continued to receive anonymous calls from several wackadoodles, Beth, plus multiple ransom notes that never really came to fruition. So she's being tortured inwardly because you got creepos coming out of the woodwork and they're really taking advantage of the situation. I don't understand why anybody would be so cruel as to torture a mother like this. I have no idea. That is, as you said, they're wackadoodles. Yeah, that kind of goes back to the Dorothy Jane Scott episode we did because her mother also received those anonymous calls. And that is just so cruel. It is cruel. That was one thing I was thinking when you mentioned about these telephone calls. It went back to that case. Okay. Well, with all of these eyewitnesses, police did begin to take this seriously and did begin treating the girl's disappearance as an abduction. They did set up a task force and recruited hundreds of volunteers to come help look for both girls. On January 11th of 1957, Loretta Grimes made a public plea in the Chicago newspapers to please bring her babies home. I cannot imagine this, Beth. No, and that seems like it's quite a while between the time they went missing to January 11th. Yeah, with all the leads coming in, I'm sure that she had a lot of hope, but this was probably six weeks later when they went missing on December 8th. Yeah. Everything changed when a man named Leonard Prescott was driving home from the grocery store coming down German Church Road in Willow Springs, about 16 miles or 25 and three quarter kilometers from the Grimes home. This is the day, Beth, when Leonard saw what he believed was two mannequins laying off the side of the road just on the other side of a guardrail by Devil's Creek, somewhere southeast of Chicago. I'm not sure how close this was to the girl's home, but by the time Leonard reached his own house, things just weren't settling with him very well. So he got his wife and they backtracked to the area where he had passed by what he thought was mannequins earlier. Wow. I'm glad he went back. Yeah. Well, this is when the Prescotts made the discovery of two young girls lying naked by the creek, frozen stiff from the elements. Oh my gosh, I feel my, my nose like it, it wants to have tears. That's a very sad story. Besides that, Beth, the two bodies were very clean and they were soon identified as the missing Grimes girls. Definitely a suspicious incident for sure. 
Mm-hmm. And I did find conflicting stories on how the bodies were arranged, but they were consistent with the fact that one of the girls was laying on top of the other. Now, towards the end of my research, I went back and looked at some of the articles that I had seen. And yes, I did see one of the pictures, but to be honest with you, it was just a bunch of police standing by that guardrail. It took me a minute to even notice the girls in the picture. What I did see was two girls arranged something like a Mm T-shape. One of the girls was laying on her left side and the other one was laying on top of her head, kind of like a capital T. Oh, for goodness sakes. Yeah. So that to me is a little unnatural. It just, it does not seem like they would have been out in the elements and maybe hypothermia took over. To me, that was suspicious in how they were laid. Sure was. Joseph, the girl's father, was the one who was called to identify the bodies. I can understand that. I just, I don't think I could ever do that if that were to ever happen to me. So Loretta stayed home and the girl's father came to identify them. Now, let me talk about how they handled the case as far as the pathologists and the community. People went door to door asking if they had seen Barbara and Patricia. This was during their disappearance where they had not been discovered yet. Mm -hmm. 15,000 flyers were distributed in the local areas. Wow. Local authorities searched local waterways and canals and get this, Beth, they questioned over 300,000 people. Holy cow. That's the population of a city. You're right. And I never thought of that. But I will say this is an accurate number because I do like to fact check. Yes, you do. And this number came up over and over again. On top of that, Beth, they interrogated 2,000 suspects. That's a lot to get through. It is. And I'm going to say that goes back to all of those eyewitness accounts that I had just gone over because they certainly had a lot of leads to go by. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 2,000 suspects, that's time consuming. And I'm sure it's like going down the rabbit hole. For sure. Now, on the flip side, unfortunately, much of the crime scene was contaminated once authorities showed up and began investigating because at least 160 police officers arrived on the scene and basically trampled through any potential evidence that was left at the scene. That's a lot of police officers. Come on, guys. Jeez. I know. And that is a lot of police officers to send to one scene. It is. A total of three pathologists examined Barbara and Patricia, but could not reach a consensus on the cause of death or the time of death for either girl. One pathologist believed that the girls were held for a long period of time and died shortly before their discovery. I'm going to have to say yes to that, Beth, because they were found in clean conditions. Their bodies were clean. Would this be where they were trying to get a hotel room? That's a good thought. Yep. He did, however, feel that the girls were abandoned at this point by Devil's Creek and died of hypothermia in the frigid elements. You have to remember, Beth, this is January in Chicago. And what is the nickname for that town? Do you know? Yes, I do. It's the Windy City. 
Yes. And I will tell you there, there was one time when I was flying with the airlines and okay, so it was probably winter time. And well, I wouldn't say winter. It was probably early spring. So here where I live in the South, I could go outside because not everybody can. I'm from the North. So I actually like the cold quite a bit, but I probably had light clothing when I went to go spend the night in Chicago. But holy cow, once I got there, Beth, I had to go find me some winter clothes because it truly held up its name, Windy City. It was a bit chilly for me. Yeah. the um, When I researched H.H. Holmes, they talked in great part about the Windy City and how the factors of all the buildings that were built helps to make it so frigid. Yeah, like a wind tunnel. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Another coroner thought that the girls had been dropped by Devil's Creek for several weeks before they were actually found. And so that would be probably, Beth, I think that they had a lot of snow coming in and they might have been covered by snow for some time. Mm-hmm. But when they were found, obviously they had thawing days where the temperatures were warmer. So everything began thawing out a bit. Ultimately, the girls' deaths were ruled as hypothermia or exposure to extreme conditions because of the frigid temperatures during those winter months and icy conditions. The coroners believed that the girls had been there for several days before they were discovered and that they had been contaminated by wild animals. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Furthermore, police believe that the girls were there during those two days of heavy storms in the area between January 9th and 10th. But like I said earlier, the warmer weather uncovered them at some point. Now, does it seem natural that Patricia would be laying on top of her sister's head out there in those elements, Beth, if they were to have died from hypothermia? Most definitely not. No, because if you go look at those pictures, to me, it just looks like they were arranged when they were discovered. Yeah, I think I'll go look at those photos. Yeah, let me know what you think. On January 23rd of 1957, Loretta was in another Chicago area newspaper saying, and I quote, I tried to tell police my daughters did not run away. They just wouldn't listen to me, unquote. She knew her girls, Beth, and said that, if they had planned to run away, they would have at least had a little bit of money on them and a change of clothes. And in addition to that, it was the holiday season, and Loretta believes that they would have also likely taken at least one Christmas gift that they received recently, but everything that they had received over the Christmas holiday, the girls had left behind in their bedrooms. Yeah, that's clearly not a runaway. Mm-mm. Loretta was also quoted later as saying, quote, My poor babies, why couldn't they have taken me and let my babies live? If the police had listened to me, they would have had the true story half an hour after the girls went missing. I had mentioned that she knows her daughters, and she called the police within hours of them not coming home on time. I mean, I honestly, I don't know if the outcome would have been any different, Beth. But they certainly would not have gone almost a month of trying to track these girls down and then finding them out in the elements after a major snowstorm. Mm -hmm. Well, let me go on to the autopsies now. Both girls were taken to the coroner's office and they had to basically wait for the bodies to thaw out before they could be examined. 
Barbara showed evidence of blunt force trauma to her face and head. Oh. Yeah. And also had wounds on her body that looked like rodent bites, which when they were found, Beth, remember how they had said that they were probably exposed to wild animals? Yes. In addition, Barbara also had puncture wounds, most likely caused by an ice pick. That's curious. The only thing I can think is, did the, um, it's morbid, but were their bodies stored in a freezer? I never thought of that. You are so right. Well, none of the wounds on the girls' bodies were determined to have been the cause of death. So Barbara did have those puncture wounds, but not enough to kill her, Beth. And this is why authorities believe, or even the pathologists believe, that exposure to the raw elements was determined to be the cause of death in both cases. Okay. It also appeared that Barbara may have had sexual relations or had been assaulted before her death because there was evidence that she had sexual intercourse before her murder. But obviously they could not determine if it was consensual or not. That's what they were kind of going with. They they determined that she had some sort of relations, but couldn't determine that it was with consent. Now, Patricia also had bruises on her face and body. And get this, Beth, she still had popcorn in her system, which if you remember, they were in line at the concession stand at the movie theater. So she still had that popcorn in her system leaving some of the pathologists to believe that she had died within five hours of leaving the movie theater. That makes sense. It does. It totally makes sense. What you just said makes sense because you had mentioned they may have been put in a freezer. That's not uncommon from true crime episodes I've heard in the past. And ultimately, the coroners did conclude that the Grimes sisters likely died on or around December 28th of 1956, which was about three weeks after they disappeared. There's your contradiction. If Patricia had popcorn in her system, we know that that's going to go through your system within 24 hours. Why is it that the coroners came up with the fact that they died three weeks after they disappeared? Yeah, that really piques my interest. I couldn't find enough articles saying either way on the timeline of when they possibly died. I do try to be as accurate as possible. I'll just say they either died between 24 hours and three weeks after they disappeared. That's all I can give you. So the question is, where were they for three weeks? Yes. The police did come up with several suspects in this case, Beth. Benny Bedwell was age 21 and was a drifter who worked odd jobs in and around the Chicago area. He briefly served in the U.S. Air Force and worked with a circus, plus was a factory worker. At the time the girls disappeared, Benny was employed part-time as a dishwasher and the restaurant owner believes that Bedwell was in the company of the two girls resembling Barbara and Patricia on December 30th, just one day after the girls disappeared. Again, lots of contradictions here. Yes. Remember when I gave you the list of the eyewitnesses, one of them reported seeing the girls with the man who resembled Elvis? Yeah. It was Benny. He resembles Elvis? Yeah, I had to go look this picture up. The only resemblance that I saw, Beth, 
was the same dark hair, slicked back in a 1950s haircut. And remember, it was very common during that era, especially because Elvis wore it. And a lot of people during that era wore it just like he did. If you were to think in present terms, I don't know if you ever heard of Justin Bieber. Yes, he's from uh... Hamilton. No, he's not from Hamilton. He's from Stratford. Right. Yeah. Just think about that. that. This was only a decade ago. Do you remember how every single 12, 13, 14 year old boy had that Justin Bieber look? Yes. Same thing. So everybody during that era also had the Elvis look. So the resemblance, I can see the black slicked back hair, but that is as far as I can take it as far as him looking like Elvis. Mm. Now, when Benny was questioned by the police, he stated that he had met the two girls in a bar and that he and his friend spent about a week partying together with Barbara and Patricia somewhere between December 30th and January 7th. That doesn't make sense, especially during Christmas time. Yeah, well, I mean, it was after Christmas and you know how things die down. True. And it was New Year's. True, but this is just a crazy thought that the girls would put their mother through this for all that time. I know. Now, I will tell you this. Bedwell was eventually arrested for the Grimes girl's disappearance after he wrote a 14-page confession. Wow. In this confession, he stated that he and his accomplice, who went unnamed, held the girls captive and fed them hot dogs and alcohol, and later knocked the girls out, stripped them naked, and dumped them out on the side of the road. And he could not be sure if they were alive or not when he had done this. Now, remember, Beth, during the girls' autopsies, one of the pathologists said that popcorn was there. Yes, I was wondering about that. Yeah, three pathologists in total had examined the girls and neither hot dogs nor alcohol were found in their systems. Let me just tell you. What happens when you get in front of a police officer? Tell us. Bedwell later recanted his confession and said that he had been coerced into making that 14-page statement under a promise that the police would let him go. I believe it. Yep. I can only imagine that he was probably there. He was exhausted. He probably went many hours without sleep. They were breathing down his neck. They basically said, sign this and we'll let you go. And I mean, it's just a pattern. I have never understood why the police would hammer questions and questions to get a confession because that prevents further investigation into the crime and they can let the real criminal go. Yes, but I guess my take on that, I completely understand the direction you are coming from, but my take with what you just said is basically that it looks good on the police department open and shut a case quite rapidly. Right. They got their perpetrator very fast. Mm-hmm. So once all that is said and done, then it's definitely going to make the police department look like they did their job. Yes. When in all actuality, when you're looking back on everything that I just said about the investigation, starting with the crime scene, I mean, they messed it up from the very start. They sure did. Yeah. So suspect number two is Max Fleig, age 17, who confessed to the murders, Beth. 
but because he was only seven, now I don't, I couldn't find any articles saying how he was brought in as a suspect or why he even confessed in the first place. But I will tell you, he was only 17. So he was not allowed to take a polygraph under Illinois law at the time. Police convinced him to take one anyway. And because he was given it illegally, they could not charge Flag with any crimes. Wow. Yeah. So that's all I, I could really find on this suspect. I have a third suspect by the name of Walter Krantz, who was aged 53, and he was a steam fitter or pipe fitter. Also, Beth, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. He said that he was a psychic. What do you think of that? Get out. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, I believe in them. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna, still going to go to a psychic one day just because I just need to see at this point if they're going to be accurate about anything in my future. I know the big eight ball is darned accurate. Have you ever played with an eight ball? No. I know what it is, but <laughs> I've never played with it. <laughs> you should get one in between your psychic sessions. Find it in the in the toy department and see how accurate it is. I'm saying it's accurate. <laughs> okay, so Walter Krantz told the police during an anonymous call on January 15th that the girls were dead and he saw where their bodies were in his dream. The police later traced the call to his home and also connected him with one of those ransom notes I had mentioned that was sent to Loretta Grimes' home earlier. So he's the wackadoodle and he denied any involvement in the girl's disappearance, but was eventually released. I suppose because they really couldn't find anything else besides the fact that he was a little out there. Yes. I do have a question because again, okay, I'm starting to see patterns in just about everything that we talk about. So why was he not arrested for the ransom notes? That's what I'm wondering too. Yeah. Okay. The last suspect is Charles Melquist, a confessed child killer, Beth. Back in 1957, he had killed a young girl named Bonnie Lee Scott, and he also placed an anonymous call to Loretta to say that he was the one who had killed her girls. So going back to Bonnie Lee Scott, she was actually found less than one mile from where the Grimes girls were found. She was also naked. And that can't be too much of a coincidence. Exactly. Well, Melquist was found guilty of Bonnie's murder back in 1959 and did receive a 99-year sentence for her murder, but he died before he could be identified as Barbara and Patricia's killer. Oh, dear. Yeah, authorities believe that Milquist is the most likely suspect and the strongest one in this case, but they unfortunately were not able to get him to confess to that before he died. After the girls were found, the community did come together and the city of Chicago held a fundraiser to help pay Loretta's mortgage and funeral expenses for both girls. The Walschlager Funeral Home it still operates today, Beth. It donated its services to the family. So yes, they probably had to pay for caskets, but the services themselves, the service director waived all fees that were connected to the funeral home. Wonderful. Yes. And even the mayor at the time, Mayor Richard Daly, attended Barbara and Patricia's funeral. 
Beth, I did see another picture in the newspapers here that showed hundreds upon hundreds, even thousands of people attending the girl's funeral. Did they? Wow. Oh, yes. On January 26th of 1957, both Barbara and Patricia were buried at the Holy Sepulchre Catholic Cemetery in Chicago next to one of their sisters, Leona. And unfortunately, Loretta Grimes died in 1989 at the age of 83 without ever knowing what happened to her babies. That really hurts when children go before a parent. And I know that it would be on her mind, Loretta's mind all the time. Oh, yes. Yeah. And not to have closure, you know, but at least she went to go be with her babies. Yeah. Well, to this day, this case remains unsolved. Police still believe today that they can solve this case and they just need people to come forward. Keep in mind now, this case occurred somewhere around 65 years ago at this point. But if there were enough witnesses still around today, sure. I mean, it would be great to be able to close this case. I don't know how realistic that is. Yeah, I agree with you being realistic because DNA didn't appear back then and the the mess of the crime scene, just too many things. Oh, yeah. So that is the case of the Elvis Presley fans, Barbara and Patricia Grimes, and there you have it. Well, thanks, Deb. That was a very good story and you really delved into that information really well. Thank you. So, Deb, what's our teachable moment today? Well, I do have a teachable moment. And, Beth, with so many things that have changed since this case occurred in 1956, remember when we lived in the big city before I moved to the States in that condo? Yes. Before we moved, I told you earlier this was going to be my teachable moment. Kathy and I used to ride all over the city on public transportation. And it shocks me that you don't know this. I don't know why I didn't know it. I think at that time, though, remember, you're older than me, so you were working at the hospital, or at least you started candy striping when you were 16. Oh, yes. So you were already in the working world. I was still in high school. True. We would go to the roller rink. We would go to the movie theater because I remember going to see Grease <laughs> with Kathy. Yes, I did too. I took out my best, one of my best friends to see Greece for her birthday. And to this day, we're still friends. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so I remember going just like the Grimes girls did. Kathy and I were exactly like that. We were inseparable. We would go all over the place. We'd go to restaurants across town. We went shopping downtown, all sorts of things. We just had a lot of fun together. That's good. Yeah, just like the Grimes girls, we always came home when we were supposed to. And I, in my recollection, do not ever remember showing up late. In Barbara and Patricia's case, the buddy system wasn't enough. Look at how many people saw the Grimes sisters at the movie theater and even en route to that movie theater. 
in this day and age, kids have cell phones, but they don't use them properly for anything more than a mobile computer. And that's the key word, Beth, mobile. It's a mobile phone. They still call it that, but kids today don't use it for that. Pick up the phone, call your parents, and tell them where you are along the way. Of course, we do have that Life360 now. That's helpful. But back in the day, you and I had pay phones, Beth. Yes, we did. Yeah, life is easier now and there's no reason why you can't give your exact location or the extra stops that you're planning along the way. I say, unless you're a parent, I don't think that you can fully grasp the importance of communicating with your mom or dad. Don't text, pick up the phone and call. There are too many cases where perpetrators use cell phones to impersonate victims through texts go the extra mile and talk to your parents or loved ones to know your plans or estimated time of arrival. In itself, Beth, I think that can help save a life and that's my teachable moment. I like that. Thank you. It really resonates with me because I see all the kids texting their parents and calls don't come. Do you know that kids today don't even know how to dial a phone? Really? No joke. (laughs) I've talked to kids to say, here, use the phone on the wall. And they're like, how do you dial? I am like, what are you? Let's have a lesson (laughs) on that, shall we? Okay. So with that being said, Beth, I'm going to give you your cue. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap. Thanks everyone for listening to Dying to be Found. Before we go, we would love for you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. That really does help us in our rankings. And be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at Dying to be Found. You can access our website, email, social media, and storyline request form by clicking on our Linktree account found in our show notes. If you like our episodes, please consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash dying to be found, spelled just like you see on our logo. Feel free to message us on Instagram and let us know how we're doing. Be sure to check back with us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts, and we will talk to you next week. Bye.